Hey everybody, Future David here for a quick disclaimer. Uh, in the video you're about to watch, you might notice that I seem a little bit off focused or maybe that I don't have a clear train of thought sometimes, or maybe I just seem a little bit low energy. Uh, and there's actually a reason behind all that. Uh, and basically what you need to know, just long story short, is that I film these videos weeks ahead of time just to allow for circumstances to come up where maybe I don't get a chance to film a video that week and I don't want to leave y'all missing a week. Uh, and so I actually filmed this video on October 15th, 2023. And if you keep up with my personal life on my other social media accounts or anything like that, uh, you'll know that around this time period, I was actually in the hospital. And the reason I was in the hospital uh, is because for the last two months, I've been dealing with like some sort of debilitating arthritis-like symptoms. The current running theory is that it's some sort of reactive arthritis. Uh, and as a result of those severe symptoms, we're literally like there are times where it's literally so crippling that I can barely even walk and barely even function. Uh, as a result of that, my doctors have had me on a lot of medication, uh, and that medication has had a severe toll on my body, uh, to where really just a few nights ago, as of the time I'm recording this right now, um, a few nights ago, I was literally discovered, this is about to be kind of graphic, uh, I was discovered unconscious in my bathroom, covered in vomit, uh, but the vomit was specifically vomited blood. Uh, and the reason why is because the medication had eaten away at my stomach a little bit, producing ulcers uh, to where basically I just lost a whole lot of blood. My hemoglobin counts were down to like 5.5. So I was rushed to the hospital, rushed to the ICU, and I was there for about a day and a half before finally getting discharged and everything. And basically for the last few days, I have just been entirely bedridden. I have been super low energy. I have been super lightheaded, kind of fuzzy minded. And the whole reason I wanted to record this episode today was basically just to kind of test my limits and see if I was able to actually go through a lesson. Uh, and the reason why is because I do eventually want to get back to work as soon as I possibly can, but I'm currently a Bible teacher at a private school and I teach seven classes a day. Uh, and so I teach the seven classes and I coach cross country team and they have district next weekend. And so, um, I'm basically just trying to see whether or not I'm capable of actually <laughs> producing cognitive thought. <laughs> uh, and so I hope that you're kind of be patient with me as I go through this. I haven't listened to the whole lesson yet. And so I think that it probably should be fine. But if you notice I'm a little bit low energy, that's probably why. And so please be patient with me. I think it should be okay, but I just wanted to give that disclaimer so that you were aware and that you weren't too harsh with your criticism. Uh, thank you so much for just joining us. And now let's be honest, I won't take any more time away from the actual episode. I will see y'all on the other end. Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is episode 25 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And I titled today's episode, The Sermon on the Mount in Retrospect. And that's because what we're going to do today is we're going to give our final thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, basically, we concluded the actual text of the Sermon on the Mount by finishing up Matthew chapter 7. And today what I want to do is I just want to give some of our final thoughts, concluding statements, and really also just along the way, maybe address some things that I wanted to address prior, but really couldn't find the proper way to really do it. And so I just wanted to kind of just share some of those thoughts. And so we might be a little bit all over the place today, just because uh, there's not really a unifying connective tissue behind all of this. Uh, but ultimately, I do think that uh, this lesson will actually be really important for us for helping understand really what Matthew's ultimate purpose was in sharing the Sermon on the Mount, and also ultimately what Jesus was accomplishing through the Sermon on the Mount, and also where this sermon kind of fits into the grander scheme of Matthew's overall gospel. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of really useful things uh, for us to talk about today. And since we have so much to cover, I say we should just get right to it. Uh, and so what I want to do just to begin this off is I want to just recap the structure of the sermon. 
which might sound kind of like a weird thing, but it's just something that I appreciate from a, just a literary level. Um, the Bible is a very beautiful, beautiful text. And obviously I believe the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant word of God. But even if I didn't, I think that the Bible is just a beautiful work of literature. And I think you see that especially right here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's something that a lot of the times I think people really take for granted and people just overlook because we're so focused on getting to application that we fail to appreciate the beauty of the text itself. And so ultimately the way that um, this uh, this whole sermon is structured, and once again, I'm not just highlighting this for the beauty aspect of it. I think that if you understand the structure of it, you'll actually be able to figure out the application even more so because you'll be able to figure out where it all fits in. Uh, but basically the way that this whole sermon is structured is that there's an introduction, there's a body, and there is a conclusion, right? And the introduction uh, is really just a series of introductory blessings, and I would say that is Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 through Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, right? So it's the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5, and on the other end, the conclusion would be the final warnings uh, in chapter 7 verse 13 through verse 29, right? And so you really have the whole sermon being bookended by these verses at the beginning and the end, and really this whole sermon itself in many ways is a kind of chiastic structure. And if you don't know what a chiasm is, uh, basically, you've probably remember this from even grade school, uh, where you have poems that are structured like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. That's a chiasm, right? So it, it's all meeting down to the middle, uh, to where there's this middle thing that is emphasizing something, and then it works its way back out. And you can see this just looking at the introduction and the conclusion, right? So if the introduction is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, well, that opens up with the crowds gathering to Jesus, and Jesus beginning to detail what the citizens of his kingdom are will look like, right? Well, then if you go back to the end of it, uh, the conclusion, you actually see this reversal as you work your way back out of the sermon to where Jesus, he's still talking about citizens in the kingdom, but really he's emphasizing the character of the kingdom, right? And he's actually contrasting people who follow him versus people who follow the way of the world, right? So that's chapter seven, verses 13 through 27. And then just how the introduction began with two verses dedicated to the crowds gathering to Jesus, the whole sermon ends with two verses dedicated to the crowds reacting to Jesus and what he said in the sermon, right? And so if you just look at that, you see how you've got like this setup and like the setup and this payoff, uh, and then Jesus talking about the citizens in the kingdom. And then the main body of the text would be Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through chapter 7, verse 12. And this is where Jesus really begins to highlight the core message that he's trying to communicate in his sermon. Uh, and really, you could view this entire body of the sermon as him interpreting the law. And that's because, once again, there's this structure to it. The way that chapter 5, verse 17 begins is with Jesus saying, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then if you go to chapter 7, verse 12, he ends by saying, Therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so basically the main body of his teaching is bookended by this reference to the law and the prophets, right? So he starts off by saying, hey, I'm not here to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. And then he ends by saying, the here's the golden rule. That's what the law and the prophets hinges on, right? And so the law and the prophets is really the bookend of this entire sermon. And in the middle, basically what Jesus does is he interprets the law and the prophets in a definitive manner for the people who are listening to him, right? So he gives what I would like to call the commands of the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom. Uh, he basically goes about uh, and he basically just explains in the first half of the sermon, uh, he basically just explains what his purpose is in regards to the law and in relationship to the law, uh, and also what his standard of righteousness is, 
right? So he says that he is here to fulfill the law and the prophets, and that's in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And then if you read the rest of chapter 5, he explains that his standard of righteousness, which is the standard that God established in the law and the prophets, is much higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And so he just basically explains that if somebody is going to belong to his kingdom, they need to up their definition of righteousness and realize that even the scribes and the Pharisees have not attained that righteousness. And so then in the back half of the sermon, which is really all of chapter six into the verse 12 verses of chapter seven, he basically explains what it looks like to actually apply this righteousness in a rubber meets the road kind of way. And he basically explains the culture of the kingdom. And he does this by contrasting kingdom citizens' righteousness with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So he talks about the hypocritical righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees versus the true righteousness of kingdom citizens. He talks about a worldly worldview versus a kingdom worldview and how kingdom citizens aren't going to live for short-term benefits. They're going to live for long-term heavenly rewards. Uh, And then he also kind of concludes this whole thing by talking about the fear of man versus the fear of God and how kingdom citizens are going to be fueled by true righteousness, a kingdom worldview, and the fear of God rather than the fear of man. Uh, And so this is basically his whole way of upping the standard of righteousness uh, for his hearers and for his disciples, but also showing how to practically apply this in the rubber meets the road kind of way. Because ultimately, we're not going to be able to fulfill this righteousness in its totality, right? Because he's saying that if you want to truly obey the law, you can't just be concerned with getting rid of adultery. You have to get rid of lust. And ultimately, we can't get rid of lust, right? That's too much. But Jesus does give us practical ways where we can go about actually fulfilling this righteousness in the here and now. And so that's really the overall message that he is trying to communicate. Uh, And the big thing that I need you to understand here is that he's not getting rid of the law and the prophets, right? This is how he starts off the whole thing, because right off the bat, he wants to make it clear to his audience that he has no desire to actually get rid of those things. Instead, what he's doing, and this leads us to our next little section here. Uh, is he is kind of demonstrating what is going to set his kingdom apart from all the other kingdoms of the world, right? And so he's got this special emphasis on righteousness, which serves Matthew's overall purpose in the sermon. And this allows me to revisit something that we kind of talked about before we went into the sermon, uh, because if you remember, before we actually went into the Sermon on the Mount, I actually did an introductory video to kind of set it all up. Um, And back in that introductory video and in that introductory episode, I talked about how Matthew's purposes in sharing on the uh, in sharing the Sermon on the Mount seemed to be primarily threefold, right? The first thing he wanted to do was demonstrate the authority of Jesus. The second thing he wanted to do was demonstrate the heart of Jesus, and the third thing that he wanted to do was to provide the manifesto of Jesus's kingdom. And now that we've actually covered the Sermon on the Mount, I hope that you can see how those three things were accomplished in these three chapters, right? Because a lot of the times, whenever we read the Sermon on the Mount, um, we usually kind of treat it in the same way that we treat all the other passages of the Bible, because we just like to quote things here and there and remove them from their original context. But you have to realize that the Gospel of Matthew is, first and foremost, a book. It is a literary composition created by an apostle of Christ Jesus, and there is a purpose and a structure to all of this. And Matthew's trying to accomplish something through his Gospel. And so, you can quote these verses out of context and still understand them to a certain degree. But whenever you understand them in their context, you actually have a greater appreciation of what Matthew's trying to accomplish, and you actually get to understand what that verse means in its greater totality. And now that we've actually looked at the sermon, I think that you can really just see how Matthew's accomplished those three things. That's really what I'm trying to get across here. 
So the first thing that I said that he was trying to accomplish is he was trying to demonstrate the authority of the king. This is something that a lot of times we really miss out on whenever we only quote these verses out of context. But whenever you actually read through the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end, chapter 5, verse 1, through the end of chapter 7, when you actually read through that, you realize that Jesus is making some huge, huge claims, right? He is not simply claiming to be a rabbi. He is claiming to be the authoritative prophet of God promised by Moses, right? He ascends this mountain, his disciples gather around him, and he says that he, he is here to establish a kingdom. And if people do not align with him, they will not belong in that kingdom, right? By the end of the sermon, he is making such bold claims as saying that on that future day of judgment, people will stand before him and they will say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he is going to be the one casting them out of that kingdom. Right? So Jesus is making a definitive claim to authority right here. And you can quote that Lord, Lord passage out of context and still understand to a certain degree what Jesus is saying. But whenever you read it in the context of the sermon itself, you actually realize that what Jesus is saying here is mind-blowing. And he is making a definitive claim of authority, which the original audience understood. The way that the whole sermon concludes at the end of Matthew chapter 7 is by people being perplexed by Jesus's authority. And so I would say that Matthew successfully accomplished that first goal. He demonstrated the authority of the king. Matthew's second goal that I listed at the beginning of this whole Sermon on the Mount discussion was to display the heart of the king, to display the heart of Jesus. Uh, and what I meant by that is that really up until this point in the story, uh, we really haven't gotten to see Jesus do a whole lot, right? The first two chapters were primarily dedicated to the setup of Jesus' story, right? Where you have the nativity story and the wise men and all that stuff. And when you got to chapter three, you have this transition from John the Baptist to Jesus to where Jesus kind of shows up at the very end to get baptized. And then in chapter four, you have Jesus going off into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and then you have him going off into Galilee to start gathering disciples. But it isn't really until chapters 5 through 7, this Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew really begins to explain to us who Jesus is and what makes Jesus tick. Right, right here in these early chapters of the gospel, Matthew's actually giving us an insight into the very heart of Jesus. And he's allowing us to see what sets Jesus apart from everybody else. Right. And so he really is just opening up the heart of Jesus for all of us to see. And I think it's a really just beautiful portrait, right? You don't have to be a Christian to even appreciate the teachings that Jesus is communicating in this. As a Christian, though, I would obviously say that this is just really reassuring because it lets us know that the God in which we believe is such a gracious and amazing and beautiful God that he would have this sort of sort of heart for his people uh, and this sort of heart for just the world itself. Uh, to where the way that Jesus talks about loving one another and loving even your enemies, it really is amazing and astounding. And the type of people that Jesus is looking for in his kingdom and the type of righteousness that Jesus expects in his kingdom, it really is amazing. And it sets Jesus apart from any other king. Uh, and from a Jewish perspective, because you have to remember that Matthew's original audience uh, is they're Jewish people. Well, whenever they think of a, a king with a royal heart and a special heart and a godly heart, the first person they would have thought of is King David, right? Because whenever you're introduced to King David in 1 Samuel, before he's a king and before he's even introduced into the picture, before his name is even mentioned, the first thing we learn about David is that he's a man after God's own heart. And we get to see David's heart being replicated in Jesus right here, but it's actually replicated and advanced and it's actually expanded upon in Jesus here to where I would actually say that Jesus isn't a man after God's own heart. He is a man with the heart of God. 
And that's because, as is going to be revealed over the course of this gospel, Jesus is a man, but he's not merely a man. He is God in the flesh. And that's going to be what's communicated here. And we already see allusions to that uh, just early on in the gospel. I mean, just think about how many times we've made reference to this just in the first seven chapters right here. Uh, but we really see this coming to the forefront in chapter two. Uh, not in chapter two, in this second uh, purpose that I've listed here for Matthew uh, in this sermon. Uh, because in chapters five through seven right here, as Jesus is interpreting the law and the prophets, he is giving a definitive interpretation but the only person who can give the definitive interpretation of the law and the prophets is God himself. Yet Jesus is interpreting the law and the prophets according to the heart of God. And he is doing it in a definitive manner. And he's establishing himself as the judge who decides who has entrance into the kingdom. Which means that Jesus is not only claiming authority for himself, but by the very statement of him representing his own heart in the sermon, he is kind of suggesting that he is God, uh, which is mind-blowing stuff. Which then leads us to Matthew's third purpose, which is ultimately to provide a manifesto for the kingdom. Uh, this is probably the primary purpose that Matthew had in mind in this, but it's also the easiest to address. Uh, because you have to realize that once again, the gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish people in a Jewish context. right? And so if he is talking about Jesus as the Messiah, and if Jesus is the Christ, well then... It just only follows that the Jewish people would want to know what will Jesus' kingdom look like. And so I kind of talked about how Matthew chapters 1 through 4 were really Matthew focused on authenticating Jesus, right? Chapters 1 through 4 are all about Matthew providing, uh, proving that Jesus has the necessary credentials to be the anointed Messiah, right? To be the Christ, to be the anointed King of Israel, right? That's what chapters 1 through 4 are about. And so it only follows that Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are all about Matthew answering the necessary follow-up question that the Jewish people would have. Okay, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, what is his kingdom going to look like? Uh, because the Jewish people had this certain expectation uh, and several expectations, in fact, about what the Messiah would look like. And as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, right off the bat, Jesus has different expectations, right? If they were expecting this Messiah to be a conquering warrior who is going to come in and squash the Romans, well, within the first few verses, they're going to be disappointed because he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And he's talking about loving your enemies. And he's talking about um, being meek and those being the people who inherit the earth. And so uh, just within a few verses, basically what Matthew's doing is he is dismantling the Jewish perspective of the kingdom and raising up the perspective of the kingdom established by the Old Testament. And so he's really returning them back to the law and the prophets and helping them interpret it in a proper way. And uh, the chief way that Matthew does this uh, is through emphasizing Jesus' teaching specifically in regards to righteousness, right? Because that really is what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. And if Matthew's goal is to get people back to the original standard of righteousness and law and the prophets, and if he's trying to get them back to the original kingdom values, that was established by the law and the prophets, what he has to do is he has to highlight the ways in which their current society had gotten it wrong. And there's no better example of this than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so what Matthew does is like in giving this kingdom manifesto is he actually just includes this sermon where Jesus basically takes on the scribes and the Pharisees head on and he just contrasts their current practices with the kingdom that he is planning on establishing, right? And so what Matthew's ultimately accomplishing through this is he's basically showing how the Pharisees, 
the Pharisees and the scribes and stuff, how they had misinterpreted the law and they had twisted it for their own personal gain and how they had made their kingdom basically no more than an earthly kingdom. Whereas if you actually go back to the law and the prophets, you'll see that the kingdom being established there is vastly different than any kingdom of the world, right? And so whenever you go through the sermon, the main thing that Jesus is emphasizing is righteousness. But the righteousness that he is emphasizing is a righteousness built on the commandments of the law and the prophets, not on the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so whenever you read through the whole sermon, really you can view the entire sermon as a contrast, right? It's a comparison and a contrast where you have Pharisaical righteousness on one side, but then you have true righteousness on the other side, right? So just in the Beatitudes, right? Jesus is emphasizing a righteousness that is built on humility and self-awareness. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees, they were emphasizing a righteousness that was very worldly in nature, and it was built on pride and self-righteousness. Uh, whenever Jesus talks about kingdom citizens, he is emphasizing that they are going to be a people who exalt God to the world, right? They are going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Their, their whole purpose is going to be to draw everybody to God. Whereas whenever you actually looked at how the scribes and the Pharisees talked about righteousness, well, they exalted Israel to the world, right? And so theirs was a very Israel-focused kingdom, whereas if you actually go back to the Torah and you actually look at it, whenever God first calls Abraham, he says, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? It's not just about Israel. It starts with Israel, and the goal of Israel is to bring all the peoples to God. And so if you keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you have this comparison and this contrast, right? Pharisaical righteousness misrepresented the law and the prophets, whereas Jesus' righteousness fulfilled the law and the prophets. Pharisaical righteousness was insufficient to enter the kingdom, whereas Jesus' righteousness is necessary to enter the kingdom, right? Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you are not going to end up in this kingdom. Whereas the Jewish people at this time period would have thought that the scribes and the Pharisees were the epitome of righteousness. Whereas Jesus shows up and says, well, no, they've been misrepresenting it. And so if you only level up to their standard of righteousness, well, you're only going to be righteous in the eyes of the world, whereas God's righteousness is something that exceeds that of the world. And so if you continue going through this, Pharisaical righteousness adds human tradition to the law uh, because that's the only thing they know how to do, right? They do not know the heart of God. And so all they can do is do what man does. Man looks to the outward appearance. The Lord looks to the heart. And so man looking to the outward appearance, they add traditions to the law in an attempt to be righteous. By contrast, Jesus, he seeks the heart of the law, right? He's not looking to the outward appearance. He's looking to the very heart itself, just as God does. And so if the law says don't commit adultery, Jesus says it's not just about the external action. It's about the heart of the issue. In the same way, pharisaical righteousness, it seeks the praise of men, whereas true righteousness seeks the praise of God. It seeks the praise of your father who sees in secret, and it's not as focused on performing externally for the uh, praise of people. Uh, pharisaical righteousness, it seeks treasures here on earth, just like other righteousness does in other worldly kingdoms. But Jesus' righteousness is different, right? True righteousness seeks treasures in heaven because it's not focused on earthly reward. Pharisaical righteousness, it produces blind vision, right? It makes you think that you are righteous when really you are actually advancing your own wickedness and getting further from God. Whereas true righteousness, the righteousness being taught by Jesus, it is the lamp of the body, right? It produces clear vision so that you can actually see rightly where you are heading. Pharisaical righteousness tries to serve both God and man. 
right? It gives lip service to God, but in the end, it's mainly just serving man. Whereas true righteousness, according to Jesus, serves God alone because you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. You can't straddle that line. You ultimately have to choose which person you're going to serve. Who is your master going to be? And that's what Jesus is trying to highlight here. Pharisaical righteousness seeks earthly satisfaction, whereas true righteousness seeks kingdom and righteousness. Pharisaical righteousness looks down upon others in judgment, whereas true righteousness looks soberly upon others in love, right? So it's not judging just for the sake of judging. It is judging for the sake of edification. Pharisaical righteousness relies upon self for all things, whereas true righteousness relies upon God for all things, knowing that God will ultimately provide for all of your needs. Pharisaical righteousness is focused on serving self, whereas true righteousness is focused on serving others. Pharisaical righteousness leads to destruction. True righteousness leads to life. Pharisaical righteousness is externally impressive but internally corrupt, whereas true righteousness is consistent internally and externally. Pharisaical righteousness is action-based and cannot save you. True righteousness is relationship-based and can save. Pharisaical righteousness neglects the words of Jesus, but true righteousness is built on the words of Jesus. And so, I highlight all of that stuff, and I know that's a whole lot, and if you really want to understand and unpack all of those, you literally just have to go back and just read the Sermon on the Mount again. But the main thing I'm trying to highlight here is that this whole sermon is a manifesto of the kingdom, right? Right here is where Matthew is allowing Jesus himself to explain to Matthew's audience what is his kingdom about. And the way that he goes about this is not by simply talking about the kingdom in earthly terms that would make sense to a Greco-Roman audience, but he speaks of it in terms that would have specifically made sense to a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience in particular that had elevated the scribes and the Pharisees to being the standard bearers of the kingdom of God. And Matthew says, all right, these are the guys that you typically look to as the standard bearers of the kingdom, and here's all the ways that they have misrepresented the kingdom to you. And he doesn't do this by simply laying it out in theological terms. He actually allows Jesus to ascend the mountain and explain it for himself. And so Jesus, in his own words, explains to Matthew's audience, this is where the scribes and the Pharisees are wrong. And here's how they have misrepresented the kingdom of God to you. And here's how I, Jesus, am here to actually interpret it correctly. And so this is why you need to reject their words because they are false prophets and they are bad trees and they are people leading you down the wide path to the wide gate that leads to destruction. And this is why you need to listen to me instead because if you follow me, Jesus, down the narrow path to the narrow gate which leads to life, then you will actually have salvation and you will actually enter into the kingdom of God. And so that's really what Matthew is trying to accomplish here. Uh, and ultimately what we see that the righteousness being taught by Jesus here is, it is a reform, it's a form of redemptive, restorative righteousness. It is not a righteousness that is simply focused on doing good things and not doing bad things, but rather the righteousness being taught by Jesus here is the righteousness that we see in like embodied in God in the entire law and prophets. Right? It is a righteousness that doesn't simply do good and doesn't simply not do bad, but it is a righteousness that constantly and consistently seeks to produce good even in bad situations. Right, Whenever you read through the Law and the Prophets, you have to understand this is who God is. Right, As soon as sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, God shows up and promises that he will make things right. It is not simply a matter of doing good and not doing evil. It is about redeeming and restoring all 
creation, right? The way that Genesis ends is with Joseph telling his brothers, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good, right? So God has this ability to take evil and turn it for good. And that is what Jesus is demanding of his kingdom citizens. They can't be satisfied like the scribes and the Pharisees to simply do what is right and to not do what is wrong. Rather, they have to seek to embody the very character of God. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, whenever man was created, their mandate was to be image bearers of God. And Jesus says, if you want to be in my kingdom, you have to be an image bearer of God. And if God seeks to redeem and restore the world, then you as my kingdom citizen must also seek to redeem and restore the world. That is the kingdom manifesto. That is ultimately what Jesus is trying to accomplish through here. And now that I've said all that, uh, this is where I got to do one of those little awkward shifts, uh, because like I said, not all of this is super connected. Uh, but what I want to talk about now is something that I find extremely fascinating, but I really haven't had another opportunity to really talk about this throughout our whole discussion on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is what I like to call the Matthew Connection. Right? And what I mean by the Matthew connection uh, is the ways that just the teachings included in the Sermon on the Mount testify to the fact that Matthew himself, the Apostle Matthew specifically, um, that the Apostle Matthew is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and this might seem like, like if you're not really um, super up to date or in touch with current scholarly debates, then it might seem to you kind of weird for me to suggest that Matthew wasn't the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but what you have to realize is that scholars debate about this stuff all the time. Uh, to where, uh, basically we can say this, even though the Gospel of Matthew has, historically speaking, always been attributed to the Apostle Matthew, in recent years the traditional authorship of Matthew has been contested by critical scholars. Right? This is simply the way things are. Right? Within the last like 200 years, 300 years, um, ever since the rise of critical scholarship, post-enlightenment, basically the authorship of almost every book of the Bible has been put into question. Uh, and I, uh, I, I typically think that the traditional authorship is the correct one. Like that's just what I hold to. Right? Uh, but I don't simply hold that because I'm uncritical of things. I like to be critical of things. But I think that when you actually examine the evidence, we have good reason to believe that the authors of scripture are the people that have traditionally been called these authors. Uh, and I think just by looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we have really good evidence that the Apostle Matthew is actually the author of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and really, there are several ways that we could defend Matthean authorship. That's what we call it, Matthean authorship. Uh, there are several ways we could defend it, but in the Sermon on the Mount, one becomes super duper evident. Because internally speaking, the gospel reads like someone who has personally been affected by the teachings of Jesus. Uh, if you know anything about the story of Matthew, we're actually going to talk about it in a few weeks because we're going to read about it in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, but Matthew was a former tax collector who was called to follow Jesus, and therefore he left everything uh, to go and follow Jesus. And that's really cool. But what's especially cool about that is that just because of who Matthew is and because of who he's writing to and because of what his former profession was and because of what he went to do whenever he left that profession, though we know very little bit about Matthew, we know enough to figure out certain things that probably would have stuck out to him. And given the things that we know would have stuck out to him, given the character sketch that were given of him in the Gospels, well, there's certain things that he emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount 
which are really, really cool. So notice some of the things which Matthew emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Whenever you look at the Beatitudes and Jesus explaining the citizens of the kingdom, basically what he's pointing out here, uh, just to summarize it, is that it is the lowly who will be exalted. And ultimately what that's communicating is that God's values differ from the world's values. Now, if you're looking at this from Matthew's perspective, a person who was a former tax collector who was trying to exalt himself and who was trying to earn money and who had basically abandoned his Jewish faith in order to side with the Romans, well, this teaching would have really stuck out because it's not the rich who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but it's the poor. And it's not the people who fight for power, but it's the meek. And it's not the people who are willing to fight, but it's the peacemakers. That's interesting. But then if you go on and you go into the back half of chapter 5, where Jesus actually lays out the heart of the law, what Jesus also continues to explain is that external performance is not enough. God is concerned with the heart. Well, this is interesting because if Matthew, once again, was a former tax collector, well, then he would have known why he was rejected by the Jewish community. It's because in their eyes, he was doing something unspeakable because he was siding with the Romans. And by siding with the Romans, he was basically spitting in the face of the Jewish people. And to be fair, I kind of get where they're coming from. But I can guarantee you that most of the people who would have been looking down upon Matthew were really not that much better than him because ultimately their righteousness was simply an external righteousness. And so I imagine, once again, this is highly speculative, um, but really the entire thing I'm talking about here is more on the speculative side of things. That's why I reserved it for so late in our discussion on the Sermon on the Mount. This is largely speculative, but if you were to just imagine being a first century tax collector living in the region of Galilee, being surrounded by a bunch of pious Jewish people who were constantly yelling at you and calling you names because of what you had chosen to do, I have a feeling that you would feel harshly judged by these people who had no love for you in their hearts and who viewed their righteousness in a very external way. Well, when Jesus is laying out the Sermon on the Mount, he's highlighting that external performance is not good enough. God is concerned with the heart. And so I'm not suggesting that Matthew was on the good end here. I think that both ends were on the wrong end here. And ultimately, what Jesus is highlighting is that the solution is not in simply leaving your tax booth and becoming a Pharisee, but it's by leaving your tax booth and becoming something greater than a Pharisee. And then if you go into chapter 6, the first half of that, well... Jesus continues to teach that the praise of men doesn't matter to God because God himself looks to the heart, right? And so once again, it's highlighting that Matthew's solution would not be to abandon the tax booth in order to go and become a Pharisee because a lot of these guys are the ones praying on the street corners. They're the ones blowing trumpets whenever they give money to the poor. What Jesus is highlighting is that that's not good enough, which probably would be something that was convicting Matthew in his heart because maybe like I don't know right we don't know enough about Matthew to know what led him to go become a tax collector and stuff like that but obviously we can say at the very least that there was something about the Pharisees that did not appeal to him because he chose that he would like he decided at some point in his life that he would rather be a tax collector than to be a pious Jew we don't know what led him there but at the very least we can say that the things that Jesus is emphasizing are consistent with somebody in Matthew's um, like like in his worldview, right? In, in what he would be living out in his day-to-day -day life. But then notice some of the stuff Matthew begins to highlight later on in the sermon. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Jesus highlights that earthly treasures are going to pass away 
and one cannot serve both God and money. Now, if you are Matthew, a tax collector, who is hearing this sermon, how is that going to affect you? You can't serve both God and money. You know what? Maybe the Jewish people were accusing Matthew of being a traitor, but maybe in his mind there was some way. Once again, it's just speculation, and I don't like to deal with speculation too much. I'm just highlighting that the things here are consistent with somebody like Matthew as he's described about in the gospel, as he's described in the gospels. Now, if you are Matthew, maybe, just maybe, you were a tax collector, but you were convincing yourself that there was a way to straddle the line. Right? Maybe you were saying, yes, I'm still a pious Jew, but I'm doing this because I need money and I need to serve God. And maybe he was primarily fueled by greed. Well, Jesus says here, earthly treasures are going to pass away. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And so this would highlight to Matthew that we got an issue here, right? Because I'm serving the world and No matter what, if you are a Jewish man who is serving as a tax collector, I can guarantee you that your primary motive had to have been money. Because it's not like you had any, like, there weren't many other perks to it, right? Because usually you would be ostracized by your family and you would be left and abandoned by everybody and kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of all that stuff. And so if he was a tax collector, his primary motivation had to have been money. And then Jesus highlights, you can't serve both God and money. But then Jesus goes on to highlight in the verses following that, that God will provide for all of your earthly needs. You needn't be anxious. Okay, well now if you're Matthew, who knows that you are a tax collector, and once again, I don't know if Matthew was present at this sermon. I don't know, like like we have to realize that the Gospel of Matthew isn't necessarily structured chronologically and stuff like that, right? So there's a lot of questions about this. I don't know if Matthew was present at the sermon or not. I would lean towards him being present there because I would imagine that's where he ultimately got these teachings from. But if Matthew is listening to this sermon, and especially if he's listening to this sermon prior to following Jesus, think about how this would work on his heart. Because he is realizing that he is trying to serve both God and money. He is trying to serve both the kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of heaven, but you can't serve both ways. And the first thing that he would be thinking of when it comes to leaving his tax booth is, how am I going to provide for myself? And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. God will provide for you. That's pretty cool. And then, at the very end of this, Jesus gives a warning. And he says that man's nature inclines him towards the wide path, but hope is found only in Jesus. Right? He says most people are going to follow the wide path. Tax collectors, sinners, even the scribes and the Pharisees. But it's the few who are going to choose to follow the narrow path. If I'm just looking at this from a person like Matthew, who is a Jewish tax collector this would be setting off a lot of warning bells in my head because it would seem like this sermon was hand-delivered specifically for me. And so, to conclude this, consider the Apostle Matthew's background. He was formerly a tax collector, and therefore we can say that he would have been viewed by his fellow Jews as a traitor for working with Rome. That is, for valuing worldly treasures more than the promises of God. Consider how shocking it would have been to him to hear Jesus accuse the other Jews of being guilty of the same thing and being no better than tax collectors. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus literally makes that comparison. He says, you are being no better than tax collectors when you do such and such. That's crazy. Also, we know that Matthew was called by Jesus from the tax booth, and we read that he immediately left everything behind and rose up and began to follow him. He, more than anyone else, would have understood the call to serve God rather than money, to seek heavenly treasures over earthly ones. 
And so, both in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in his gospel, we can say this. Matthew emphasizes the dangers of money and greed more than any other gospel. If you compare Matthew to Mark to Luke to John, Matthew, above all the others, emphasizes the dangers of pursuing money, right? Whenever Matthew talks about why Judas betrayed Jesus, he is going to specifically highlight that it was greed that motivated Judas to betray Jesus, right? This reads like somebody who was actually living out this story himself. This reads like somebody who heard about Jesus' teachings about serving God and money and who was personally affected by it. That's what I'm trying to highlight here. And if the author was trying to act like he was Matthew, he would highlight these connections, but he doesn't. What I mean by that is that if the person was just some random author later on in time who was trying to pose like the Apostle Matthew, it seems like he would go out of his way to be like, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. And that was really relatable to me, Matthew, because I was a tax collector. But he doesn't do that. It's so understated that it just reads like somebody who actually lived these things out. The better explanation is that the author is writing about those teachings, which he viewed as most central to Jesus' ministry. And this makes perfect sense given Matthew's background. That's the main thing I wanted to highlight there. And I probably spent more time on it than I needed to. Um, but I just found it really cool because um, a lot of times, once again, Modern scholarship tries to oppose, uh, and, it, and it tries to suggest that the traditional view of Matthew actually being the author of the Gospel of Matthew just shouldn't be taken seriously. Whereas if you actually just read the Gospel from the perspective of somebody like Matthew, who was a former tax collector called from his tax booth, so many things that Matthew emphasizes over Mark, Luke, and John make perfect sense given a person with Matthew's background. And so I just wanted to highlight that because I find it really cool. Once again, is this the most important thing? Not really. It, it really is not the most important thing in the world. Um, I just wanted to highlight it because I found it really unique and neat and uh, just thought it was worth addressing. Okay. Uh, once again, awkward shift again, um, just to shift to something else I want to talk about. Um, we need to talk about this whole Jesus as Israel thing because this is something we've been talking about in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 and we're going to continue talking about it throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, but we really haven't talked about it a whole lot in chapters 5 through 7 so far. Uh, and what I mean by that is that throughout this entire sermon, we've really been talking, uh, throughout this entire Gospel, we've been talking about how it seems like Matthew's main narrative structure of the entire story of Jesus is that he is presenting Jesus as being the greater fulfillment of the history of Israel. And so the way that Matthew is even presenting Jesus' story follows the structure of the story of the people of Israel. Uh, and you see this just in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, right? It began with Genesis, the Spirit of God producing a new Adam, right? The first words of the narrative story of Matthew are literally starts with the word Genesis, right? The beginning of Jesus Christ came about in this way. Uh, and then like Isaac, his birth is announced and miraculously accomplished. And then you have a guy named Joseph who is a dreamer and he's appointed to deliver his family from death. And then you have a baby killing tyrant trying to annihilate God's chosen seed, right? Back in Exodus, it's Pharaoh. Uh, and whenever you get to Matthew, it's King Herod. Um, and then you have God's son being called from Egypt until the death of Pharaoh, right? Uh, you have this both in the character of Moses and ultimately of Israel in the story of Exodus. And you have Jesus being called from the metaphorical Egypt, which is actually Israel, uh, whenever they go to Egypt, right? So you actually have this ironic reversal. And then you have the deliverer returning to Egypt to deliver the people. Whenever Moses returns to Egypt to deliver the people um, from Pharaoh. And then you have Jesus returning to Israel, the new Egypt, in order to deliver them from their sins. 
And then you ultimately have God's son being called from Egypt. Uh, actually, sorry, I um, <laughs> I repeated something there. Um, and then you have a hard-hearted leaders of Egypt who are being condemned by a prophet, right? This would be the story of, um, like, you have Moses and Aaron showing up to confront Pharaoh and all of his magicians and stuff during the story of Exodus. But then you have Jesus and John the Baptist showing up to confront the leaders of Israel during the time period of Jesus, right? And so you have this comparison and contrast just working through the story of Israel, but now Jesus is the new Israel. Uh, and then you have Israel passing through the waters, being delivered from Egypt once and for all. You have this whenever the people of Israel are freed during this Exodus event, and they go through the Red Sea out into the wilderness, well, you have Jesus, the new Israel, passing through the waters of the Jordan River as he is being delivered from Egypt once and for all. Um, but now Egypt is Israel, right? Israel is the new Egypt, right? And so he passes through the Jordan River and the Spirit of God descends upon him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then if you go back to the Torah, you have Israel entering into the wilderness for a time period of testing, right? They go into the wilderness for 40 years where they are tested by God. Well, Jesus, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tested by God. And then you have Israel coming to dwell in a place where God's kingdom is announced, right? They come to dwell at Mount Sinai, and that is where God descends, and he pronounces that he is about to make a covenant with them. And then you have Jesus coming to the land of Galilee, where he announces the kingdom of God. And then you have God's appearance being accompanied by miraculous signs and a call to devotion whenever God shows up at Mount Sinai, right? There's lightning, there's thunder, there's fire, and God calls the people to devote themselves to him. Well, Jesus shows up, and whenever he shows up, he starts performing miracles, and he calls the people to repent for the kingdom of heavens at hand. And so if you just look at Matthew chapters 1 through 4, you see that Matthew is specifically going out of his way to present the story of Jesus in a way that flows with the story of the people of Israel, right? And so that's why we can say that Matthew's probably not telling everything inherently chronologically, but it's because he has a certain narrative structure to this whole thing that would have been especially apparent to his original Jewish audience. But that leads us into the Sermon on the Mount, where we see that this trend continues, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we have to realize that basically where we left off in Matthew chapter 4 was Exodus chapter 19, where God descended upon the Mount on Mount Sinai, and he called the people to devotion, accompanied by miraculous signs, as he prepared them for his covenant. Well, that's exactly where the Sermon on the Mount picks up, right? So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he ascends the mountain to interpret and fulfill the law. Well, in the same way, in Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh descends on the mountain to give the law, while Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law. So if you're just looking at that comparison, Jesus is functioning both as Moses and as God, in the parallel, right? Because God descends on the mountain and Moses ascends the mountain to be the mediator between God and man. Well, Jesus is the mediator between God and man in this instance. And then as Jesus goes into the uh, Beatitudes, he identifies kingdom citizens. Well, whenever you go to Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh identifies his kingdom citizens as the people of Israel. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus clarifies his purpose is to fulfill the law and the prophets, Right? Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh clarifies that his purpose is to make a covenant by giving the law. Right? And so once again, they're clarifying their purposes. And then you go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, and Jesus begins his whole sermon by taking some of the Ten Commandments and interpreting them definitively. Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, how does the whole sermon how does the whole Mosaic law begin? It begins with the Ten Commandments being delivered. 
And then you go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 7, verse 12, which is really the body of Jesus' whole sermon. And what he does is he interprets the law, clarifying God's standard of righteousness. Well, if you go read the actual law as it was given to the people of Israel in Exodus through Deuteronomy, Yahweh is delivering the law, providing a standard of righteousness, which then Jesus goes on to interpret in his Sermon on the Mount. And then the way that Jesus concludes his whole sermon is that he gives blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, right? I mean, literally the way the whole thing ends is him saying, if you hear my words and do them, you're like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock and you'll be good to go. If you hear my words and don't do them, then you're like a foolish man who builds his house upon sand and you're going to be doomed, right? Well, that's exactly how the book of Deuteronomy ends, right? The law, if you're reading it in the Old Testament, it concludes with blessings for, dis for obedience and curses for disobedience. And throughout the entirety of the law, especially in Deuteronomy, you have this emphasis on the words to hear, right? You hear, you learn, you keep, you do. That is the flow of Deuteronomy whenever you read the law. Well, sure enough, whenever you get to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says you need to hear and do, right? And so what I'm just trying to argue here is that whenever you get the Sermon on the Mount, it's not like Matthew just hit the pause button and stopped his whole Jesus Israel thing. Rather, he specifically put this narrative discourse in here in order to con like, in order to further his presentation of Jesus as Israel. Uh, because where they left off the narrative was at this super crucial moment when God was about to deliver his law to the people of Israel. And now Jesus, having done all these other things we've seen in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, he arrives at this super crucial moment where he is interpreting the law definitively for his kingdom citizens who will become the new Israel, right? And so I was just trying to highlight there that we still see that same trend continuing there. Unfortunately, uh, the conclusion of the Torah predicted the hard-heartedness of Israel and the ultimate hardening that they would receive from God. Uh, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks to come. Uh, but this is unfortunately how the whole book of Deuteronomy ends. Uh, and this is the tragic story that is detailed in the gospel of Matthew, right? Because if you actually read the final few chapters of Deuteronomy, it is not a great picture for the people of Israel. Ultimately, their hearts are going to be hardened because they're going to reject God. Well, Matthew is telling the story of how the law and the prophets were fulfilled because he's going to show how their hearts were hardened. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see it concluding with Jesus offering his hearers the same choice that Yahweh offered Israel. Come to him and be blessed or reject him and be cursed. Once again, Jesus is putting himself in the place of God, right? With God, like God said in Deuteronomy, if you obey my words and keep them, you'll be blessed. If you obey my words and don't keep, or if you hear my words and don't keep them, then you'll be cursed. Well, Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, but now he's putting himself in the place of God. And here's the tragic story. Near the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapters 24 through 25, Jesus will ascend another mountain and he will deliver another sermon, but this one will be delivered in judgment on Israel for rejecting their Messiah. As Yahweh promised in the Torah, Israel will be hardened for a time and the good news of the kingdom will go to the Gentiles. Uh, so the main thing I'm trying to highlight there is that this is exactly what the Torah promised. And that is the story that Matthew is telling here. The whole story that Matthew is trying to communicate in his gospel is that Israel is being hardened for a time period and the gospel is going to be taken to the nations because of God's immense love for Israel as promised in the law and the prophets. And think about how the whole gospel of Matthew is going to end. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. 
That's especially crazy whenever you realize that the Christ is the king of the Jews, but he's telling his apostles to go make disciples of the Gentiles, right? But that's all part of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. And so when you look at the Sermon on the Mount here, you have to compare and contrast it to the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25, because chapters 24 and 25 are going to make it very clear that over the course of the chapters in between, the people of Israel are going to choose to follow the wide path that leads to the wide gate that leads to destruction. And therefore, what God's going to do is he's going to hand them over to their hardened hearts for a time period. And he's going to take his gospels to the nations so that one day in the future, he can bring it back to them. Which then leads us to us going forward. Uh, because what I want to do, just to conclude this whole thing, is I want to just give us a snapshot and glimpse of where we're going to head going forward in the weeks to come. Uh, because we've spent 25 weeks going through Matthew chapters 1 through 7 alone. And now what we're going to do is we're going to go into Matthew chapters 8 through 11. And if you remember the overall structure of how I uh, presented the gospel of Matthew at the very beginning of this whole study, is I kind of mentioned that, let me just like put all this on the screen real quick. Uh, I kind of mentioned how really Matthew chapters 1 through 25 are broken down into a series of five sections. And then you have chapters 26 through 28, which are just the death and resurrection, um, just narrative story that we have in all four of the Gospels, right? But Matthew chapters 1 through 25 are five different sections, and each of those sections includes a narrative and a discourse. And now that we've concluded the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we've actually concluded that very first section, right? I call that the person and the platform of the king, right? And that's chapters 1 through 7, right? The narrative was, cha was chapters 1 through 4, and then the discourse was chapters 5 through 7, right? Well, now, going forward, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the next set of narratives and discourses, which is chapters 8 through 11, so it's a much shorter section than the one that preceded it. Uh, and this is what I have called the power and the proof of the king. And the narrative details the miracles of the king, which is going to be chapter 8 and 9. Uh, and then you have the discourse, which is the mission of the king, which is chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1. And so, basically where we're going to head from this is we're going to head... Um, just like we were heading into Matthew chapter 1, right? Narrative first and then discourse, right? Um, back in Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we saw Jesus, uh, we saw Matthew communicating the authentication of the king, right? Where he was really trying to communicate ultimately um, whether or not Jesus had the credentials to be the Messiah, right? That was the main point he was trying to communicate there. And what we saw in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 is that Jesus did have those credentials. But then, Going into chapters 5 through 7, Matthew made it his new goal to demonstrate, okay, well, what type of authority is the Messiah claiming to have? What does his kingdom look like? What is he wanting to accomplish during his ministry, right? And what we see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is that Jesus' authority is a lot higher than the Jewish people expected it to be. Because Jesus is very much putting himself in the place of not only a king, but the place of a prophet, the place of a priest, and the place of God himself, right? And so Jesus' authority is very, very high, which then leads us into this next narrative section, which I've called the miracles of the king. But ultimately, what you have to realize is that the miracles that Jesus is going to perform in chapters 8 and 9 directly flow from his claims to authority in chapters 5 through 7. Uh, and the main reason I say that is because people, anybody can claim that they have authority. Right? It's one thing to say that I have authority to admit somebody into the kingdom of heaven and not. Right, Anybody can say that. The question is, do you have actions to back up your words? And as we're going to see in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Jesus does. And so it's not like Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are just empty words 
from an egotistical jerk who just likes to say he has a lot of authority. No, 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 no. Whenever you get to chapters 8 and 9, people are going to realize, oh, this guy actually has that authority. He doesn't simply teach with authority. He actually has authority over nature and the supernatural as well, right? And so going into the miracles of the king, what we're going to see is we're going to see a back and forth within just chapters 8 and 9 where there's going to be three miracles and then a call to discipleship and then three more miracles and then a challenge of discipleship and then three miracles and then a summary. Right. And so you've kind of got this back and forth structure just within the gospel of Matthew itself, where you have set of miracles, something about discipleship, set of miracles, something about discipleship, set of miracles, summary of the whole section. Right. So that's what Matthew's going to accomplish in the narrative section. And then now that he said so much about discipleship and now that he's firmly established the authority of the king, what he's going to do is he's going to take us into chapter 10, where the king gives his apostles a mission and he basically sends them out to go and do kingdom work, right? And so in chapter 10, uh, through the first verse of chapter 11, he's going to appoint the 12, he's going to instruct the 12, and he's going to warn the 12 about the dangers of their mission, right? And so there is a logic to this entire gospel, right? And there's a structure to it, and I'm hoping that you'll great you'll appreciate that to a greater degree in the weeks and the months to come. That was already a whole lot, and I talked for way too long. Uh, but thank you so much for just like bearing with me on all that. I just wanted to cover a lot of that stuff so that we could just kind of wrap up this whole Sermon on the Mount thing. And next week, we will get things started by talking about uh, just the miracles of the king. And I'm really excited for that to get back into the narrative of stuff. And I hope that you are excited about it as well. Uh, until next time, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. Remember who you are. And of course, Maranatha.